Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and joining me today is a man who has a tip for everyone. He says if you're having trouble falling asleep, just pretend your alarm is going to go off in five minutes. It's Dale. You'd be dreaming by then, would you? Oh, yeah. Heck, yeah. I think we just need to sleep backwards. You know, I was thinking about that the other day. Who was the, who was the guy who invented the snooze button? Yeah. He didn't want to get up. <laughs> but yeah, if you just if you could sleep backwards in reverse, I mean, you just you slowly wake up. You know, you just you just slam yourself down to sleep and then... <laughs> slam yourself to sleep. Yeah, and then you just slowly wake up. I mean... It, It'd be great. You've been thinking about this a lot. I thought it. I thought because <laughs> yeah, when you have man, I take sleep seriously. I'm telling you, I was sleeping on the way home. I got home, I was like, man, that was a good nap. <laughs> you turn the turn the heat on in the car. You can be asleep before you get home. Man, I can, I can go to sleep in two seconds. Oh, I know you can. I have to wake you up sometimes on the podcast. I'm telling you, because we were snoring. <laughs> What's going on, dude? Same old, same old. Same old. Yeah, man. Same old, same old. Getting a little excited about the weekend. I'm ready to go. Yeah, you got a big plans for this weekend, don't you? I do, man. Yeah. I'd be happy. See, yeah. my friend, see some friends from across the pond. It's uh, It's been a while. Yeah? Yeah. That'd be great. I hope you have a good time with that. Uh, I hope You'll have to get too. back on here and give us some details. Oh, yeah. It'd be fun. Oh, yeah. You got any shout-outs or anybody you want to mention before we get going on this episode? Uh, not too much, man. We got some cool stuff coming up. We're trying to get some hats done and a little sneak preview of them a while back on our uh, TikTok gimmick. And, uh working on some new stickers and some other stuff coming up so hopefully we get that going well pretty well mm-hmm. here shortly so just give a shout out to my friends that are flying over the pond hope you make it safely and we'll see you in florida that's it i'm gonna go ahead and give a plug for our, our merch right here if you want to go to the store page and get you a t-shirt something mug or do something cool get you a short sleeve shirt since it's warming up a little oh, bit oh yeah man yeah time to get you some new ones you know them old ones getting holes in them yeah we hadn't had a apple podcast review and a week or so so if anybody wants to jump over there and give us a rate and review we appreciate it we will we're gonna get started on this episode dude yep it's gonna be a this is a pretty interesting story yeah my wife recommended this uh she brought it to me the other week and very interesting story man pretty wild man it, it really, is it really is yeah there's a there's a couple movies about it i didn't i didn't know anything about this i didn't either i watched the movie though yeah it's pretty good pretty good movie yeah we're going to the state of wyoming okay i don't know if we've ever done a case out of wyoming before Nah, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't nah. tell you what we did last week. No. Nah. Well, yeah, I can last week, but the week before, I might not. <laughs> yeah, because we record these in advance, and somebody will ask me, uh, what's your episode about this past week? And I'm like, I couldn't tell you, because we're working on something <laughs> we're for the- past that, yeah. Yeah, we're, we moved on. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah, but if they, they ask me about a case, I can tell you, but as far as what our last case was about, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, you can tell everybody everything from anything. I don't remember nothing. I might remember some- Odd, irrelevant details about a case, but you know everybody's name and their birth date and everything. Blows my mind. No, no, I don't. You're over there. Well, so and so, and they was born this day. And this just, I'm like, eh, yeah, but they went fishing that one day. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Anyway, let's go to Wyoming. Okay, we're going to Wyoming, and actually, we're going to the town of Cokeville, Wyoming. Right next to Pepsiville? No, I don't know. There's no Pepsiville there, but. Melliellaville. No. Okay. <laughs> and it's not even Diet Cokeville. But this is the town of Cokeville, Wyoming, Dale. Gotcha. And it is a small town in Lincoln County, Wyoming. Yes, sir. And the keyword is small. Yeah, and according to the 2010 census, the population at the time was 535 residents. That's a lot of people. Yep. And just going to give a little bit of history on the town of Cokeville. Shoshone Indians were the first inhabitants of this area. 
the first Euro-American settler. His name was Tilford Kutch. Uh, he arrived there in 1869, and in 1873, he opened up a trading post and ran a ferry across Smith's Fork. Hmm. And after the arrival of the railroad in 1882, the town grew and was incorporated in 1910. Damn. If it grew, it must have been tea tiny when he got there. Yeah, he was a town of one. <laughs> town of one, yeah. yeah. Now, according to the United States Census Bureau, the town... Now, get this, Dale, has a total area of 1.18 square miles all mm. land. So, like I said, this is a very small town. Yeah, with a head white 166 households. Wow. 127. This is uh, in 2010 now. So, I'd say everybody there knows everybody. So, it was probably, it was probably a little bit less because our story takes place in 1986. Yes. So, I'm sure it was a smaller town then as far as residents. Probably. Very, very small town. Okay. But the story we're talking about today, Dale, is a, is a hostage crisis that took place at Cokeville Elementary School in 1986. And the guy we're talking about, his name is David Gary Young. And just a little bit of background on David Young. He was born in Albany, California on June 12th, 1943 and moved to Cokeville as a kid. And a lot of the circumstances of his early life and childhood were pretty normal. But when David got into his 20s, he seemed to go and undergo a transformation. He proved to be a highly intelligent man and highly involved in politics and philosophy. And his ability to focus on a task often bordered on full obsession. Oh, yeah. And he became fascinated with subjects like psychology, criminal justice, philosophy, and politics. Mm. But unfortunately, despite all his high intelligence, it soon became clear that David suffered from some kind of severe mental illness, likely a combination of schizoid personality disorder or paranoid schizophrenia, psychosis, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And his bizarre and often volatile personality made other people avoid him. He's too smart for his own good. Yeah, and he struggled with forming relationships. Uh, you think? Yeah, I would say so. Now, as a young man, David had a passion for firearms. Mm. And for seven years, he ran a gun store there in Cokeville and was often seen wandering the streets wearing a cowboy hat and carrying two revolvers in hip holsters. Yeah. Now, the townspeople there in Cokeville gave David the nickname Wide Earp. Oh, why? Yep. And but this was one of the early tombstone baby. Yeah, this was one of the early warning signs of David's serious mental problems, man. Well, side note: in 1986, the population was 486. So, I mean, uh, in 1990, it was 486. Yeah, so, so that? we're not there close. Okay. Okay. Now we'll get that in there. Okay. Now, <laughs> now, when David was in his 20s, he began to document every aspect of his life. He transcribed every job he had, every address he lived at and described in great detail the events of almost every single day of his life. Good Lord. He kept diaries down to who he talked to and what he ate and what the weather was like. You know, that's a lot of wildness, but, I mean, to tell you the truth, though, it'd be kind of cool if, if you did that. Yeah, but... To be able to go back and read it, but, I mean, that's just way too much. But you write today about what you did yesterday. Well, yesterday I wrote in my journal that <laughs> the weather was warm and toasty and I ate... What I ate the day before. No doubt. So you just write about what you wrote about the day before. and Yeah, it'd get a little monotonous, I think. I think it would. 
And you'd have to have a hell of a place to keep a library like that. You'd have to have some, yeah. Because nothing digital either. It was all writing on a piece of paper. Yeah, notebooks. Yeah. Now, despite his shortcomings, David persisted and determined to find his place in the world. And in the 1970s, he attended Chadron State College in Nebraska, where he earned a degree in criminal justice and graduated near the top of his class. And when he returned to Cokeville, he married and had two daughters named Angela and Princess. And in 1979, David became the town marshal of Cokeville, Wyoming, and served as the community's only police officer. Now, if I already knew he was kind of flaky, why the hell would he be Lincoln town marshal? Well, I mean, he's already walking around like Marshall Dillon. Yeah. Wider. <laughs> anyway, I but, thought that was odd. Yeah, it's very odd. But he seemed to finally found his calling being the, the marshal there in town. Yeah, well, that lasted about six months, I think. Yeah. But his inability to coexist with the citizens there eventually cost him dearly. He right. was he was known to have affairs with several women, and numerous residents complained of his bizarre behavior, including his disturbing habit of taking nude pictures of his pre-teen daughters. Mm-hmm. And, and settling them to make money. Yeah. Yeah. Not town marshal. Not too good. No. And after his town marshal for only six months, he was fired by the Cokeville mayor for his misconduct you reckon yeah (laughs) and soon afterwards david's wife filed for divorce citing her husband's extramarital affairs and unpredictable temper smart lady yeah very smart she got out get out at the night at the right time yes but uh david getting fired was the first in a series of things that would eventually lead him to some violence Disgruntled and I guess furious over getting fired and the divorce, David went into a severe depression. Mm, started drinking, hanging out in the bars. Yeah, not good. And he was rambling about his resentment of the government and blaming them for his predicament that he was that he was in. Mm, Tim full hat time. Yeah, <laughs> it was at a bar there in Cokeville that David met a young waitress, and she was an aspiring singer too. And her name was Doris Lytle Waters, but like David's. Doris was divorced and on hard times after losing her son in a tragic accident. And she shared David's hatred for the government. So we're going to put them together and make it worse. Yeah, so uh, both David and Doris decided it was best to leave Cokeville and just start over. And days after David was fired, he and Doris abruptly left town. Hmm. Vowing to never to come back to the community. We ain't coming back. Mm -mm. And the pair married in Tucson, Arizona and moved into a mobile home and settled there in their new life with uh, Doris and the children. And Doris found work in a laundromat while her daughters worked as waitresses at a local restaurant. Now, David remained unemployed and just kept he just kept his anger. He'd sit around mad all the time. He did. Damn. Just fussing at the government. He had, to be, he had to be a blast man hanging out with. In the midst of all his anger, David would encounter a, a highly dangerous political movement that would soon change the course of his life, Dale. Mm, that's always good. Yep. And both of them joined the Posse Comitatus, and this was an anti-government white supremacy militia that urged its followers to reject government laws, refuse to pay taxes, and stockpile weapons, and organize all white townships across rural America. Yeah, these people are very radical, man. Now, David Young, he quickly took a keen interest in this neo-Nazism and white separatism. 
and he developed an admiration for Adolf Hitler. Oh, yeah. There you go. And he wrote uh, about the posse comitatus promise of a brave new world. This is in which white Americans had their own nation free from taxation and government overreach. And David, he even began to think about himself as Hitler, reincarnated. And he was destined to lead the United States into a superior future, just as Hitler had done with Germany. Yeah, all this while getting trained in weapons and survivalist tactics and all this mess. Yeah. Mm. So before long, his warped fantasies soon turned into reality. He took the posse comitatus' call for violent rebellion to heart and soon formed a plot to facilitate his fantasies. Idiot. David became convinced that it was his duty to launch a revolution against a government that he hated. And this revolution, he believed, would mark the beginning of a new era, which was an all-white homeland in the upper Midwest, in which he called a brave new world. And he would call himself God and rule over Wyoming as an ultra-wealthy region, ensuring a better future for the kids. Good Lord. Yeah. This dude is warped. Now, this whole elaborate warp scheme of his that he come up with was nicknamed the Biggie. Mm-hmm. B-I-G-G-I-E. Right. And it became his and Doris's primary goal in life to the exclusion of almost everything else. This is what they were totally focused on. Crazy. So David and Doris also believed they would need more manpower in order to launch their revolution. So David recruited his daughter, Princess, to accompany them on their mission. Well, did she have a choice? I don't think she had much of a choice. I don't either. Mm-mm. And David also had a couple of his close friends, one by the name of Gerald Deppie and another one by the name of Doyle Mendenhall. And David told the pair that he had concocted a get-rich-quick scheme and asked that they wanted to join in. And they both agreed. Yep. And eager to get some easy money, they asked David how the plan would work. But he refused to tell them and tell them that he would only reveal to them the specifics of his plot once it started to uh, sort of unfold. Yeah, he just kind of kept them in the dark. I think he's actually trying to get them to kind of give him some money to work with and then have them as investors in this new plan that they he kept telling them about. And I think they were in because they knew he was a really smart dude. I don't think they these guys realized what the hell was going on. And here. he probably got them in because they probably had some money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to be able to pull this off. Yeah, so, you know, they was waiting for this big plan to come in, and I don't think they had no idea where he was going with it. So neither of these, these buddies, Deppie or Mendenhall, had any idea that they were pawns in this game of his. Right, right. And they were just in it for the money, you know? Yep. So. Well, oh, yeah, you know, everybody wants to get rich quick. Oh, uh, yeah. Everybody does. Yeah. So on the early morning of May 16th of 1986, this is when David and Doris Young set their deadly plan into motion. They were anticipating an armed showdown, and David and Doris had loaded their van with four rifles, nine handguns, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. They also had a homemade bomb. Yeah, gigantic homemade bomb. Now, this bomb was housed in a modified shopping cart. The bomb was designed consisting of three wooden shelves which was separated the various compartments on this bomb. Yeah, and the shopping cart is not like uh, one of those long ones you usually use at the grocery store. It's kind of like the one that's got the over and under. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, just a little. The one that's got a little basket and another basket underneath it, and then like the stacked up kind. Yeah, the top shelf were where some rounds of ammunition uh, were to act as shrapnel. And beneath the ammunition, there was a one-gallon plastic milk jug, and it was filled to the top with gasoline. And on the bottom shelf were six tuna cans filled with gunpowder. But each of these cans was rigged with an electronic blasting cap, which were all wired to a contact switch fashioned out of a battery and clothespin gimmick. And on the bottom shelf were six tuna cans filled with aluminum and flour. Right. Now, it said, you know, some places we saw where it said, you know, gunpowder and this, but when, especially in the movie and stuff, they used uh, gunpowder, I mean, uh, aluminum and uh, flour, which mixed together, and when it goes into the air, it'll ignite, which sets, basically sets the air on fire. Yeah. So that's pretty uh, pretty radical. Like a, know, so. like a dust bomb, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, everything just catches on fire. Mm-hmm. So I guess when it's, this thing's made like a different stages, you know, it would blow up and then that stuff goes up and just would catch everything, you know, like a flash fire. Yeah. Flash fire. Each of these tuna cans was rigged with an electronic blasting cap, which were all wired to a contact switch fashioned out of a battery and clothespin. Right. And the way the clothespin would work, when you opened it, it had like a metal contact on each side. And then uh, you stuck a piece of wood in between the contacts and then it was tied to a a cord and then that cord was on a long uh like a shoelace and it would tie around your arm so if you moved your arm and you pulled that piece of wood out those contacts would go together which in turn would set off the bomb like a dead man switch detonator exactly exactly yeah Yeah. but so but this like we said this contact switch itself was connected to a long shoestring like dale said right and it could be tied to someone's arm and if the string was pulled the battery would ignite the blasting caps which would in turn detonate the gasoline and send the gigantic fireball exploding in all directions yeah wow and using the ammunition on top of the on the top shelf as shrapnel and the bomb's explosive yield would be equivalent to 25 sticks of dynamite it would be enough to level entire building yeah because this dude was smart he knew what he's doing and now he's already been trained by these neo-nazi people you know, and I think he even blew up a school bus just to try to see exactly what it would do. Back when they were in Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it just blew that school bus all to smithereens. Right. Yeah, nobody was on it. He just had it out, and they were out in the desert or something, just, I guess, testing bomb, testing this bomb making and whatever. But, yeah, it was pretty pretty wild. So we're getting into the plan a little bit more right here, and the plan was for this group to take over the Cokeville Elementary School. And what they did, they placed the teachers and students around the bomb, and they were going to demand a massive ransom from the authorities. And if the authorities refused David's demands, he would detonate the bomb, right? killing himself and all the hostages in a large blast. Mm-hmm. But David knew full well that by using kids as human shields, the authorities would be more likely to comply with his demands so he's trying to what he's trying to do here is he's crazy he's trying to think he's going to get enough money to uh finance his brave new world plan but just <laughs> yeah but just yeah but just keep in mind uh his buddies gerald Deppy and doyle mendenhall they had no knowledge of, of this man right yeah because he would never tell them what, what his plan was but they still believe that the biggie 
was a simple money-making scheme. Right. And it was They were all in the dark. Yeah. I think only David and uh, Doris knew what the hell was going on. And I really don't know how much she knew as far as the Biggie plan. I'm sure she knew all this other stuff, but as far as his whole plan, I don't even know if she knew the whole every detail. Yeah. But it wasn't until just moments before the van was to leave for Cokeville that David revealed that they were going to be soldiers in his revolution against the government. Mm-hmm. But uh, his buddies, Deppie and, and Mendenhall, they were pretty horrified yeah, by this. They didn't want no part of this shit. They uh, didn't, like Dale said, they didn't want no part of this, and they refused to participate. Mm-hmm. But now David, he wasn't going to let his buddies, Deppie and Mendenhall, go and report him to police. Instead, David uh, pulled a forty-five caliber pistol and ordered them into the van's back seat yeah. where Doris and Princess handcuffed both of them. Yeah, yeah. Handcuffed them to the van. Golly. Yeah, so they couldn't get out. You definitely can't go tell on me. That's it. You know, nobody had phones in 1986, so you just stuck. Now, whether his buddies Deppie and Mendenhall liked it or not, they were now at the mercy of David Young and his, yeah. his hell-bent on launching a revolution, man. You want a revolution? Yeah. And they were just the first two hostages to be held by David Young. Mm. And within hours, hundreds of lives would hang in the balance, man. It's get crazy, man. So we're moving up to Friday, May 16th of 1986. Now, this was just a regular day of work and school for the residents of Cokeville, Wyoming. And with the long week finally winding down, many of the Cokeville Elementary School students were looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, ready to get out of there, man. So it was about 1 p.m., David Young's van pulled into the parking lot of Cokeville Elementary School. And David, Doris, and Princess got out of the van and un- unloaded their... It's broad daylight, dude. Yeah. Middle they of the day. Unloaded all their weaponry from the van, including the shopping cart bomb. Mm. And David tied the shoelace mechanism to his shirt, loaded his weapons, and began pushing the shopping cart toward the school. Crazy. And Doris was following him right behind him right but now it's about this moment princess she had a change of heart yeah i think she just finally hit her what the hell is going on here and realizing the tragic implications of what was about to happen she suddenly had an intense desire to leave princess knew her father was intending to use a bomb against cokeville but she had no idea that he was going to target an elementary school right and princess told her father david that he couldn't follow through with the plan. Yeah. And urged him to do the same. And my God, she told David, how could you do this to innocent kids? Yeah. And, you know, we read, we heard an interview with her, you know, she's like, started, you know, trying to get this stuff out and everything. And uh, she started start freaking out. She's seen the kids running around. She realized what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But David would have none of this, man. Nah, he's he's all in. Yeah. Which after she said, you can't do this to, empty, to uh, these kids, and he told her, well, if you want to leave, you can leave, but you're going to help me carry this stuff in first. And so she got her started getting the guns out and stuff because he pulled, when she said that she was going to leave, he pulled his gun out and put it to her head and said, you're going to help me carry this stuff in here. So she started carrying the stuff and going in, and then she got so nervous that she dropped it, uh, dropped some guns, and he turned around and put the gun back to her head and said, don't be effing around and get that stuff and we got to get it in here. And then once they got inside, he got mad and said, if you want to go through the keys and said, get the hell out of here and you're no daughter of mine. Wow. And he said she was so nervous. That's why she, you know, just feel, just been freaking out. And that's when, go ahead. Yeah. But this time, man, she was just in tears. Yeah. And she immediately got in the van and drove away 
in a hurry. Yeah, she said in the interview that she just jumped a curb and was almost on two wheels trying to get the hell out of there. And these dudes are still handcuffed in the back, you know. But yeah, she was intended to go to the town hall and inform the police of David's plans. Right. And she hoped that there was still time to stop him before his uh, little plot got into motion. Yeah, but it was too late. But it was at 1.30 p.m., David and his wife Doris entered the school with the bomb and their guns. And there was no turning back. No. The school secretary, her name was Christine Cook. She went by Tina. And she was the first to notice the couple walking into the school, pushing this strange-looking cart in front of them. And at first, she assumed the two were just just lost. This scruffy-looking people. Yeah. And she was like, is there something I can help you with? And Tina asked David, and he just smiled and said, yes, ma'am, there certainly is. David brandished his forty-five caliber Colt Commander pistol and aimed it at her. And he told her, this is a revolution, and your school is being taken hostage. Consider yourself a prisoner. But she was sort of dumbfounded at first. She believed the incident was some sort of cruel prank, but looking into his eyes, she could see that it was real, man. Yeah, no joke, bro. Yep. And she even said it in a later interview, if you looked into David's eyes, you knew it was no joke. Oh, yeah. Man. Mm. And he instructed her, don't push any alarms, don't answer any phones, or call for help. Right. And then he gestured to the shopping cart. We are very serious, Miss Cook. I have guns, and this is a bomb. If you call anyone, the children will die. Mm. And he also opened his jacket, revealing the shoelace detonator tied to his wrist. And he said, see this? And gesturing to the switch on you know, the bomb, he said, all I have to do is pull my arm and the entire building with everyone in it, blows to the sky. And then he said, you and I are only one half inch away from death. Just then, there were three more teachers entered the hallway, and they were looking to see what was going on, all this commotion. They were they found themselves staring down the barrel of David's Colt revolver. Yeah, forty five not nice having your face. No, it ain't. And David ordered the secretary, Tina, to unplug all the phones at her desk. In order to ensure her compliance, he reminded her of, the situation at hand he told her if you try to hit me jump me or do anything at all i will pull this bomb trigger as i go down right so he's uh, untouchable you know if you think about it yeah because all he's got to do is flip his wrist and pull that if he pulls that pin out of the middle of that uh, clothespin it's over yeah but after tina was done unplugging the phones david led her at gunpoint down the hall to room four this was a first grade classroom taught by a teacher janelle dayton and she just finished reading a book to her class and they were about to start another subject when yep. she was interrupted they were reading the three bears oh really yep hmm. but she was about to start teaching geography busting open the door david and doris entered the classroom four yelling this is a revolution and david young announced to the startled students and teachers that i'm holding all of you hostage and some of the children became quite hysterical man Oh, well, they started, really? <laughs> yeah. They started crying, and, and he told them to sit down and shut up. Yeah, I have a bomb, and I'll set it off. And, yeah, you better do what I say. Yeah, man. As David got all the teachers and children together, Doris began lining up weapons and ammunition along the classroom wall there in front of the, I guess, the chalkboard. Yep. And she and David anticipated their revolution would end in a hell gunfire, and they were all ready to go down in a blaze of glory. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Now while David. Young held the classroom at gunpoint. Doris separated the group and embarked through the school 
uh, was trying to round up all the kids. Yeah, man. She was going classroom to classroom, and she'd go in there and tell them, hey, we got a surprise. Just walk in smiling like nothing's going on, like it's just a happy day. We have, we have a big surprise for everybody down in classroom four. Come on down. Everybody go down. And the teachers were just getting their kids in there, lining them up and walking right down there. And they walk in the door and see what's going on. Yeah, but when they got into Miss Dayton's classroom, they were pretty much overcome by the smell of gasoline. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, little known, I mean, uh, he didn't know, but that, that thing had a little bit of pinhole in the bottom. It was dripping. Yeah. Yeah, fumes were coming out pretty good. Yep. So within minutes, there were a total of 167 people which were 150 kids and 17 adults. They were crammed into room four. It was like a 30 by 32 foot room. Man, that's a lot of people. Yeah, just jammed into one little area. Right. And he told them, uh, don't even think of running away. We don't want to hurt you, but if you try to run away, we will. I'll shoot you in the legs. Yep. Man, with a 45. And as the all the kids sat, terrified on the floor, Doris walked around them and passed out copies of David's manifesto. And this was his little philosophical little book that he had written called Zero Equals Infinity. Hmm. Yep. And this is the little manifesto that which David spent years writing and revising about his, his beliefs. Idiot. Yeah. And this little pamphlet, Zero Equals Infinity, consists of confusing and disjointed nonsensical Stuff about Socrates, reincarnation, Newton, Shakespeare, um, Adolf Hitler, government. Everything. Yeah, hydrogen fusion, law yeah. systems of the government. Yeah, I thought he thought he had figured out how to reincarnate, but he knew to go to this new world, you had to die to get there. It was just, he's, he's flaky, man. Yeah. So if anything, the only message that this little pamphlet, Zero Equals Infinity, said was how to is how Delus- delusional man yeah his mind became so basically he's just handing this out and everybody's going damn this dude is like he just proves it right here trying to read this mess so it's just pretty much a testament to his insanity when you think about it he's going there and handing his pamphlet out to first graders here <laughs> read this yeah yeah here read this <laughs> okay so when they were in inside this little classroom number four david and doris used black duct tape to form a small square in the middle of the room, calling it their magic square. And the couple pushed the bomb in the middle of it. Now, just to, say, to sidetrack here, in the movie, is a little bit different. Now, I don't know, according to this, what we're doing here, you know, how I mean, everything's different. But it was like all the kids were starting to agitate him, and he was getting really starting to sweat, you know, sitting around in the room with this thing. And uh, he was worried that one of the kids was going to bump into him and pop that switch. And then, so some he said something to Doris, and Doris went to one of the teachers, and one of the teachers got some tape out, out of a supply closet, and made the thing around him to keep them, and that way, he's called it the magic square, and that way it would kind of diffuse things a little bit, and keep the kids from irritating David, and then keeping the kids away from him and the bomb as well. Mm-hmm. So, whichever one's true, I'm not sure, but that's the way it was, uh, in one interview I read, and it was the way that, that way also in the movie. So just keep in mind, too, don't forget, this uh, milk jug had a small pinhole on the bottom of it. Right. Dripping gasoline. Yeah. Now, the school's principal, his name was Max Excel. It's a pretty cool name. No doubt. Was, he was pretty concerned about all this, about the kids, and he asked David Young if he could go to the nurse's office to get some aspirin and tissue and books to help them calm them down. And he allowed Max, the principal, to take care of this. Right. 
And as the principal left, David shouted a warning, be back here in 10 minutes or I'll start shooting these kids one by one. Right. And while he was away, the principal quickly phoned the town sheriff and told him what was going on. And at first, the sheriff didn't believe him. But when Princess Young arrived at the town hall and relayed to him David's plans, the sheriff, you know, he realized that the situation was real. Now, the sheriff, he immediately formed all law enforcement agencies in the area of the scenario unfolding in Cokeville. And within minutes, dozens of officers from Lincoln and Sweetwater County, the Highway Patrol and the Teton County SWAT team, and even officers from neighboring states of Idaho and Utah, they got to Cokeville Elementary pretty quick. The police, they cordoned off all escape routes and put up barricades and established a tactical operations center and prepared for what believed to them would be a violent showdown. And officers armed with shotguns, pistols, rifles, and revolvers took up positions around the school ready to shoot down the suspects if they tried to make a run for it and in addition to all this every ambulance fire truck and emergency worker available there in the town was immediately dispatched to cokeville elementary right you know there wasn't a whole lot of them in town you know i don't think i think most of the 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 police officers who were in the town from the actual town were not in town and their sheriff was like 45 minutes away when this happened so I guess these come from neighboring towns that come in, to, which, you know, how far can it be with this town's only a mile big. So. Yeah. And I think the closest hospital is, what, 30 minutes away? So, yeah. In different directions. There's It's like, to go this way 30 minutes or go this way 30 minutes. Yep. Yeah. Now, parents were and family members, they were starting to get word of this, and they were gathering up around the school. And uh, even the news media had been informed of the situation. And they were all forming up around the school. Mm-hmm. Begged the police to let them go into school and get their kids, but this was to no avail. Right. All I could do was just stand out there and pray. Yeah, and said most of the fathers showing up, all of them had their guns and their rifles with them. Man. Now, eventually, David Young established contact with the police, informed them of his plans, and David told the police that he was holding 167 students and teachers hostage and that he was launching a great revolution. David demanded a ransom of two million dollars for each hostage and a phone call with president ronald reagan yep to whom he had already sent a copy of his manifesto yes he uh, told them that uh, i'm prepared to be here 10 days or more if necessary because he had he packed a bunch of food and yeah, he brought a bunch of supplies with him right? yeah to be able to stay there because he knew it was going to take a long time to raise that much money yep but of course david's demands were beyond feasible man the ransom he demanded would exceed three hundred and thirty million. Then, yeah, which is close to what eight eight hundred million now. I think. Yeah, so yeah, it was a, a lot, lot of money. Yeah, almost impossible. But the town couldn't pay this man. They didn't have that money. No, they don't know. And the police seemed trapped. And David was holding over one hundred fifty people hostage with a bomb, and they had no way to appease him. It looked like you know this incident could only just end in tragedy. Mm-hmm. So as this standoff wore on in the afternoon, the kids, they got hungry, thirsty, and they were getting restless, too. Yeah. And some cried for the parents, asking to go home. Others were overcome by the nauseating stench of the gasoline, and some of them got sick and started vomiting. Yeah, them fumes was getting rough in there. Yeah. So this is when the teachers asked David and Doris if they could open the windows to let the room air out. Right, and that way it calmed the kids back down so he didn't get so agitated once yeah. again. 
It would make you feel a little bit better, I guess. Yeah. So Doris agreed and opened the windows to air out the room. And other teachers asked David Young if they could get some materials to help calm the kids down. Mm-hmm. And David let them do that and allowed the teachers to gather games and drawing materials for the kids. So gradually the mood sort of got a little bit better there in the classroom. Some of the kids began drawing and coloring while others read books and played board games. And there was a teacher even brought in a television and the students watched Transformers as this standoff went on. Hmm. And one of the students had just turned 10 years old that day and to help lighten the mood, students and teachers sang happy birthday to him. Yeah. And even Doris Young joined in singing. Crazy. Yeah, I'm telling you. Yeah, People but, are loony, man. But yeah, Doris, she seemed to be calm and composed throughout all this for the well, most part. I mean, maybe that was what she really thought. She she had to go along to try to keep everything hunky-dory. I mean, do you really even think that she had any idea that this was no. as real as it seemed? No, I don't. I, I could be wrong, but I mean, especially as the way it was portrayed in, in the movie. I mean, she was just kept saying, and I, I hate to keep saying that but you know she's just she was just in awe of how smart this dude she thought he had a lot of stuff figured out and he thought this is just to get some money to help with his plan and all this mess i really don't think that she because um, i don't know you'd think she would be a whole lot more on edge yeah but uh, people would later recall that doris's demeanor changed and she even uh, seemed more withdrawn and saddened, and she even passed out tissues to the kids and who were crying and, and even prayed along with them. So, yeah, maybe that's when it started really getting real. Yeah. Yeah. So the praying of the children also affected David Young. He became increasingly angry and agitated and began demanding the children be quiet. His attitude seemed to wither away, and it appeared that he was becoming extremely nervous and more paranoid. Right. So this was about 3.40 p.m. in the afternoon, and this was several hours in the standoff. David announced that he had to use the bathroom. Yep. And he untied the string from his wrist uh, that was connected to the bomb's detonator, and he handed it to Doris, who tied it around her arm. And David left the classroom and walked across the hall to the bathroom. And once out of the classroom... Doris decided to calm the, all the restless hostages down. She told everyone, the, it's quiet time. Yep. And Doris then turned away from the hostages and hunched over the shopping cart and began to fiddle around with the bomb. But no one knows for certain what Doris was trying to do. And perhaps she was trying to adjust the string or get more comfortable. You know, nobody knows. And even perhaps, you know, she was moved by the prayers of the hostages and was trying to defuse this bomb i mean who knows uh, she, she probably didn't have no idea how it was how she it probably didn't this is what this is what uh, some accounts of what people were saying afterwards gotcha but either way doris's attention was now focused on the bomb instead of the hostages and there was a teacher that walked over to doris as she was hunched over the shopping cart bomb and the teacher had a headache from all the gasoline fumes and was going to ask doris for some water and she tapped Doris on the shoulder to get her attention. Startled, Doris quickly spun around to look at the teacher and, and doing so accidentally jerked up her arm, pulling the string tied to her wrist, triggering the detonation. Mm, and damn. Yeah. So in an instant, the giant bomb exploded, Dale. 
Yep. And there was a deafening, fiery blast erupted through the classroom. Right there in the middle of 100 and how many people? 167 people. Mm-hmm. And it spewed a gigantic fireball that completely engulfed Doris Young and sending burning gasoline and shrapnel flying all across the classroom. In every direction. Yeah. Almost immediately, the room became completely engulfed in a thick black smoke. And complete panic and chaos ensued this classroom. And the kids began screaming, yelling, and crying in terror. They were running around through the smoke, trying to get out of the classroom. And some teachers heroically took action and began shoving the kids out of the open classroom windows. Yeah, just throwing them out as fast as they could. Just desperate to get them out. Yep. Even throwing them out in the hallway. Now, in the midst of all this pandemonium, Dale, David returned from the bathroom, and he entered the classroom, and Doris was lying on the floor, and she was badly wounded from the explosion and was just barely alive. She was burnt, totally burnt. Yeah. So David realized this plot had failed, and he, he knew his revolution against the government was in ruins, and that, if he surrendered, he would never be free man again. So David aimed his forty-five caliber at Doris's body and fired a single shot into her head, killing her instantly. David then fired another shot at a fleeing teacher. His name he was the music teacher. His name was John Miller. Yeah. And the round struck in struck Miller in the back and exited his shoulder, but it didn't inflict any serious wound. And just barely, everything I read barely missed his spinal cord. Yeah, about, about half inch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and what we read before is that Doris was on fire, and he seen her, and he shot her in the head. I don't know if she's laying on the floor or not, but we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah. So there's just some different accounts of this. Yeah, but who knows? There's craziness going on here. And this is when David went back into the boys' bathroom, closed the door, and pressed the barrel of the, his Colt commander against the side of his head and pulled the trigger. Yep. All right, now following this explosion, first responders and worried parents – Feared the worst. Oh, yeah. The blast had been heard all across town, and smoke was now pouring out of this classroom. And to many people, it was almost certain that dozens of kids and teachers had just lost their lives. Yeah, blown to bits, man. Yep. And out of this dense smoke, dozens of terrified children, some of their clothes or hair were on fire. Yeah, running crazy. And they were screaming and crying and into the arms of their parents. Yep. And emergency workers set up a triage outside the school where they treated dozens of victims who had suffered burns or scrapes. It was so wild that even some of them, you know, were jumping out and taking in. Actually, I think four, three or four of them had ran all the way home because, I mean, you know, it's, it probably wasn't that far away anyway, but they, they ran, ran all the way home because they knew that's where they would be safe. And they just wanted to be with their parents. Yeah, and three of them were burnt pretty bad, but they ran all the way home. Yeah. Crazy. Now, they said that they, believe it or not, had cleared this room out within less than a minute. From the time the bomb went off. About 45 seconds, what yeah. I heard. Yeah. And immediately following the blast, the Teton County SWAT team, accompanied by a squad of policemen and FBI agents, made an entry into the Cokeville Elementary School. And inside the school, the SWAT team found several injured students collapsed in the hallway. They were immediately carried outside to the ambulances. Yes. And as they prepared to enter the burning room forward, the SWAT team prepared themselves for the worst. They expected to find dozens of dead children and adults lying around in this gutted classroom. Mm-hmm. And they were, they even thought there was no way that anyone near the bomb would have survived well, I didn't this. Know. Yeah. But when the SWAT team entered the bomb out classroom, they found it almost completely abandoned. Yep. 
There were no body parts, no severed limbs or mangled corpses. Yeah, nothing. It appeared that as if the children had just simply vanished into thin air. Yeah. Wow. It's just a miracle happened that day, bro. Yep. Crazy. And searching through all the smoke, the police found the badly burned body of Doris Young lying in the middle of the classroom, surrounded by scattered remnants of the bomb. And she was lying in a pool of blood and appeared to have been shot. And police officers moved Doris outside to the lawn of the school, and a yellow sheet was placed over her body. Right. Now, checking the boys' room that David had went into, the boys' bathroom, the SWAT team found David's body lying on the floor, dead from a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. And one SWAT officer kicked away at his uh, Colt commander and dragged him out of the bathroom and handcuffed uh, his corpse in the hallway. Just to be safe. Just to be safe, yeah. yeah. Now, police, they continued to search the wreckage of the classroom, but to their amazement, they found no other bodies in the area. And the SWAT team couldn't believe, you know, what was going on. Although the classroom had been completely destroyed by the blast, it appeared that none of the children or the teachers had been killed. And the only bodies the police could find were those of David and Doris Young. Now, let's talk about that a second. Yes. This uh, this thing blew up right there in the middle of everybody. Yeah. I mean, a this hell, a hell thirty of a by bomb. thirty-two classroom, packed, slam full of people. One hundred sixty-seven people, and nobody died except for the two perpetrators, and they died from bullets from his gun. How crazy is that? I mean, she was burned up pretty bad, so she's probably going to die anyway. But I guess just because she was right there over the bomb, over the, near the bomb, but yeah, it blows my mind. Even the teacher who had walked up and talked to her and tapped her on her shoulder or whatever happened there lived. Everybody, and she was inside that magic square. Yeah. The, the taped off yeah wow the only people to lose their life that day were the two perpetrators not one child died and not one none of the adults died they all made it every damn one of them just the two perpetrators amazing yeah blows my mind now, cold chills to think about it i know and outside the school the teachers tried to restore order to all the you know the kids and everything and one teacher did a head count just to make sure everyone was present. Mm-hmm. And to his amazement, he found that all 167 children and adults were alive and accounted for. Yeah, crazy. And he even did a recount, but again, found that everyone was had escaped. They made it. Every yeah. damn one of them. It, it's, it's unimaginable. He even yelled, we're all here. He yelled with, you know, with joy and relief. I've counted everyone. We're all alive. It's a miracle. That was his quote. So in the aftermath of this incident, many wild theories swirled. Some of the children claimed that moments before the blast, they had seen an angel telling them to go by the window. Mm-hmm. And others claimed that they had seen the ghost of dead relatives appear and protect them from the blast. Yeah, they said they saw them like come down like a bright light and go around the bomb and it would uh, direct the blast upwards instead of on them. That is crazy. Yeah, man. Yeah, when I heard all that. It gave me cold chills. Yeah. But investigators later determined the reason why the bomb had not killed everyone in the room. One major reason was the fact that the classroom windows were open. And because the windows allowed the for the blast pressure to dissipate, and the bomb's explosion was not as powerful. But still. Yeah. And it was also later revealed that only three of the six blasting caps in the gunpowder filled, you know. The, Those cans, yeah. Yeah, the tuna cans had ignited. And had only partially detonated the bomb. And additionally, it was revealed that the the gallon of gasoline on the shopping cart apparently had a hole in it, like we talked about. And some of the gasoline had dripped 
onto the gunpowder, mm-hmm. and wet gunpowder doesn't explode when it's wet. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, the blast force of the bomb had been significantly reduced because of all this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy. And furthermore, and more importantly, evidence was also uncovered suggesting that it was Doris Young herself who had prevented further destruction. And forensic investigators discovered that several of the wires on the bomb leading to the blasting caps had been cut with a knife. I don't know about cutting with a knife, maybe with a power flyer or something. Yeah. I mean, cutting wire with a knife ain't easy. Yeah, there's one... Um, Especially if you go sawing on one that's in a bomb. Yeah, there was one um, interview we read with the investigator. He said it looked like the wires had been cut. Yeah, with like pliers. Yeah. Yeah. But he couldn't uh, explain it. Mm-mm. I don't know. Doris would have had the mentality to have cut those wires. I don't man. think so either. And she'd have to do it right there in front of everybody. So and he wasn't gone that long. And, uh, you know, then uh, whoever it was went up talking to her would have had to know she was cutting wires. And would have left her alone, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Because, you know, her talking to her actually were that and the headache caused her to jerk and set it off. I know. That's it's crazy. It's just, I don't know, it's unexplainable. So whatever the cause or reason, the end result was the same. The town of Cokeville narrowly avoided a tragic catastrophe, and the only people who died that day were David and Doris, like we said. Yeah. It makes no sense. It's unexplainable, but it... It sure is a divine miracle, most, so you, most of them claim anyway. You and I were talking about this today earlier, and you know, you think about that 500, 500 people there in town at the time, and then you know, you got 167 people right there. That would have, you know, a whole generation would have been wiped out. Yeah, they said, you know, everybody, you know, it's a small town, like you said, but there's only 500 people, and there was 133 kids, I think, was the, the child number, maybe, yeah. give or take. And, uh, and they said that everybody knew one of those kids was either their kids or a nephew or something. So, yeah, it would took out the whole next generation. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that school is uh, kindergarten through sixth grade. Yeah. And then, you know, older than that goes to seventh grade, goes to high school. So it would have took out the whole that whole next generation. Yeah. Sixth grade down. You know, because, you know, uh, when we was reading the thing with the uh, – the bomb guys, you know, talking about how it should have just blown the whole roof off that building. You know, 25 sticks of dynamite, wasn't that what it was? Yeah. Equivalent to that, if it had blown up full, full force. But hell, still, even if a half of that or less in a room packed full of people, you know, and what was wild, the bomb guy had said, you know, they were all kind of holes in the wall, shrapnel everywhere where those bullets were going off. And, uh, you know, even people, one guy had even said that he heard it, you know, tune, 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 like the bombs, the bullets were going off. And he said, I'm not going to lie. When I was outside, I thought David was in there shooting those kids. He said, but what it was was the heat making that ammunition go off, you know. And that shrapnel was in the walls everywhere, and not one person got grazed with one. Not one. Yeah. And he said, it, you know, it was wild that most of that was above the kid's head in the walls. Mm-hmm. It was directed that way. I mean, it's just random bullets going off. It, it just blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it should have leveled that whole place and it just and didn't kill anyone. I mean, a couple of the kids got burnt pretty bad. But even while we were seeing that one thing with that lady, it was burnt pretty bad. But today she has no scars whatsoever. No. And if you ask them, I mean, it's a pretty religious community of uh, Latter-day Saints. You know, and they're all like, well, you ask us, the prayers were answered, and they were answered by God himself, and he's the one who saved us all. And 
she's like that one kid you know said that uh she looked up and and saw a lady and said to come over to her and told her she loved her and it was like her she thought it was her aunt or something later she realized who it was but anyway someone come to her and said you need to listen to your brother and her brother had come and told her right after that to get over to the window. Yeah. Let's go near the window. And a lot of these kids, you know, were talking to their parents and stuff, and that's when they started the stuff about angels started coming out. And, you know, like one uh, girl was with her, either her grandmother or her aunt, or maybe and some, anyway, a family relative, and she was helping her remove uh, photos from an old photo album and putting them into a new one. And as she was pulling the photos out, she's kind of lit up. She goes, wait, this is the lady. This is the lady. She's like, what are you talking about? This is the teacher who helped me and told me what to do. And uh said, but I hadn't seen her at school no more. Where did she go and why did she quit teaching? She goes, that wasn't the teacher. That was my aunt who passed away years ago. Yeah. And uh, she goes, no, that's who who saved me. So all these, and there was, I don't know, four or five different kids done that. You know, it was one had seen a picture of uh, one woman's grandmother in a locket. And she said that, that was the lady who who told her, you know, that's who they saw in the room. Wow. So it's, whether you believe it or whether you don't, it's pretty damn wild to me. You know, it's just kind of a, like I said, it just gives you chills the more you think about it. I know. Now, all told, 79 of the hostages suffered injuries, mostly second-degree burns, smoke inhalation, and other injuries from exploding bomb. But this incident, it was detailed in a book called The Cokeville Miracle, When Angels Intervene, and it was written by Hart Wixom and his wife Judine, and it was published by Cedar Fort Incorporated, and which was formed the basis of a CBS made-for-TV movie titled "To Save the Children" in 2006. And the Cokeville Miracle Foundation compiled a book the day from parents and emergency workers and former hostages, and the story was also featured on Unsolved Mysteries. Right now, some of the survivors said that that movie was kind of off a little bit now that's not the one that i watched and that was the one that had uh richard thomas in it right yeah from john boy yeah and they Waltz. said that, you know they'd watched it but at the end of it when they come in and show the room that the girl just lost it because she said the room was almost exact to the room that they were in but there was a big image on the wall and they said that it looked like well, that would be where god was standing to uh deflect a blast wow and she she, she just lost it with chills now the other movie that uh it's on uh youtube yeah. Well, the one. Uh, the Cokeville Miracle. The Cokeville Miracle. Yeah, I keep saying Cook. The Cokeville Miracle. Yeah. Now, that was a pretty good movie, but it was a little bit different. Than that. And then they said that it was basically uh, made off the book that one of the survivors' mothers has written. Yeah. yeah. It, it was released on June 5th, 2015, but it is available on a lot of streaming services. Yeah. And it's a, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. It gets into the uh, religious aspect of it and everybody's encounters with the, well, the pretty, angels and stuff. And Right. And it was uh, made by a Mormon company, too. So yeah. you know, it's going to have that angle to it. But it's not overly pushy, and it's pretty good. It's really good. It's a really good movie. Yeah, the story's a little bit different. But it's, I mean, not, not terribly different. But, yeah, it's good. Yeah. But, yeah, what a story, man. It just blows my mind because <laughs> when he first brought this to me, I'm like, oh, dude, I don't know about kids and bombing and a school bombing. And it's like, nah, <laughs> check it out. And the more we check it out, the more I'm just blown away about the only pe- only people who died. So uh, one last thing on this, too, that we need to mention that uh, Princess, his daughter, and the two guys that were funding and helping him, they weren't charged in any of this. No. Uh, go to jail for anything on this because they, they refused to participate. Right, and for years a lot of people, you know, thought that Princess was in on it, but she says she definitely wasn't. Mm. 
you know, and then when that second movie we were talking about, uh, the Cookville Miracle, when it came out and uh, a lot of survivors watched it, they seen that, you know, she was portrayed in a better light where, you know, she she didn't want to do it because the kids and went straight to the cops. And then she said that after that, a lot of these survivor kids actually reached out to her. Yeah. And she said she don't think she's cried so hard in her whole life that these kids, you know, to come up and that are grown reach adults out to now. her and, and say, you know, we see how how it was now. And, you know, yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty it's amazing. pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. So that, that probably brings some closure to her and gives her a little bit more, you know, a lot off her shoulders, I imagine. Yeah, right, because after this, she married her, her childhood sweetheart or whatever, and he was in the military, and they moved across, overseas somewhere. She just wanted to get as far away from her as she I'm, could go. Can't blame her. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you can't outrun it, but damn. Yeah. But anyway, that is the Cokeville Elementary School bombing. It's a pretty amazing story, actually. It really is, man. Know, because, I mean— it's it's a lot different than what we usually do, and it, it's, if you think it's going to be a hell of a tragedy all up until you realize that not one child uh, died. Not a. All right, Dale, we're going to get out of here, bud. All right, man, let's roll. We want everyone to be safe. Please be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.